0: Good morning, Restoration. As you know, we are in a new series that started last week, and it's called A People Who Transform. And many of us... Thank you. Many of us have been in the church for a while, or even if we're new, um, the idea of transformation is a little disillusioning once you actually hit the path of life (laughs) and realize how stagnant you can become. So this series is core to who we are. It's not like an exegetical series or even a topical series. It's um, it's like the heart of, of what we are about. And so we're continuing on this week and the title this week is Community Is Not Optional. Unfortunately, <laughs> fortunately. Um, so we also, we love people's stories and we believe that the greatest power lies in hearing what God has done in the lives of the people around us. So we have a treat this morning. We get to hear from Angel this morning. Go ahead and come on up. Yeah, as we were brainstorming as a staff who we could talk to when it comes to community, Angel was the first one that came to mind. (laughs) You may sit here. So, hi. Hi. Um, so, you came to mind first, and that's kind of because of the timing of when you moved here. Mm-hmm. So, tell us when you moved here, and tell us what happened. Yeah. Charlie and
1: I moved to Colorado in October of 2019. So, right before COVID. But even before, <laughs> or like, I guess we moved out here just because we wanted a fresh start we had been living in his parents'
0: pool house for two and a half years. (laughs) Let's scoot back a little bit. I can't see the people to our side, sorry. (laughs)
1: Look at my face. There we go. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Hi, Ben. (laughs) Um,
1: Why did we move out here?
0: Yeah, you just, sounds like you just took a leap.
1: Yeah, Um, we wanted, I had just graduated college and Charlie asked me if I wanted to move out here after I came home from my internship in like August. And I was like, sure. <laughs> and then we moved in
0: October. <laughs> oh, to be young 20s. <laughs> I know,
1: we were... <laughs> um, but even before COVID, I was so lonely. Charlie had a job lined up um, at Lowe's. <laughs> um, and I didn't have a job. And my only friend was Buddy. <laughs> the Who's dog. Buddy. Okay. <laughs> tiny Shih Tzu. <laughs> um, and for months, I, I had no friends. I was talking to people at like Target saying I like their outfits. Hey. <laughs> um, yeah, but it got to the point where I eventually reached out to Arvada Young Life because I had been really involved in Jackson, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, hey. <laughs> I don't have anything at all going on. <laughs> um, can I help? Uh, and I didn't end up serving because I got a job, but through them, I met Jaden.
0: Okay. So that was, meeting Jaden then was a transition. Yes. So tell me about that. Um, terrifying
1: <laughs> because, uh, I don't know, we started going to his house church and it was kind of like, Um, Yeah. House church. That's scary. Yeah. Yeah. So COVID was good because we started going to house church. Um, and it was like, it kind of became like a safe place for me and Charlie. Like it was a tiny group of people that we knew were going to be there and could like rest. And it was also just like, super different from how we
0: grew Yeah, up. talk a little bit about that.
1: <laughs> I grew up ba- in a Baptist church in Chicago, and Charlie grew up in a super <laughs> mega Baptist church in Tennessee. So um, we entered Colorado knowing the scripts, or like what to say in um, perfect Southern Young Life bubble. Um, and then when we started going to house church, Everyone had their own opinions. They could disagree with what Ryan was saying, and it was cool. Made uh, fun of him a little bit. Made fun of yeah. him. <laughs> the, his, his back. That reflecty watch
0: <laughs> in the videos.
1: <laughs> One time during Christmas, I had all my decorations out, and he kept pointing to the, mop, the pom-poms on my TV stand. He <laughs> <laughs> kept pointing at it. Anyway. Love anyway. It, yeah. yes. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, yeah, <laughs> love you. <laughs> um, but it was, like, the first time where we just, like, had the freedom to say what we wanted mm. and disagree with, like, things that we had grown up learning, um, and that was, like, unreal for me, mm. <laughs> um, and it felt very safe for the both of us, uh, and that house church soon became, like, the start of our friend group. Mm. Um, and, yeah, that transition was, like, amazing because it was everything that I had longed for and prayed for, but it was also so scary because I felt like at any time, like, this group could just fall apart or I could be disowned. <laughs> so, like, hold on to them as tight as You didn't could. believe it at first. No. Yeah. I, it, we had a birthday party for me <laughs> at Brooke's house, <laughs> and I was so anxious because I was, I could not believe that all these people had come to celebrate me, mm-hmm. and I couldn't believe that they all loved me. I even had Brooke, like, take off the sign, Angel's B-Day, on her door, because I just wanted it to be a hangout. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't want really probably my
2: to be <laughs> on, <your> back,
1: <laughs> to be on me, um, but then, like, a whole year passed. Mm-hmm. We're all still there, and it was, like, I don't know. I could finally breathe, knowing that like all my friends loved me and cared for me.
0: <laughs> so, how has um, like settling into this community? How has it formed you?
1: Um, I'm not lonely anymore, <laughs> even though our friend group like doesn't hang out weekly like we used to. Like our friendships are so rooted that like I feel safe. Um, I know that I have friends I can cry to when I lose my job or walk with when I'm going through health problems. Um, yeah, I, I, don't,
0: I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't ask you this before. It's on the spot. But do you think that you would have had the energy to um, do the script that you knew? to try I, to? try Were you desperate enough for community that you would have had the energy to just... Do the Southern Baptist thing?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I no <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: So the but, authenticity yeah. of the community yeah. was and
1: we kinda moved here to not do it. Mm-hmm. Continue doing it. Mm-hmm. Um not that it was bad, but my like, My foundation is good. Mm. I'm glad I grew up in Awana memorizing (laughs)
0: verses. (laughs) That Awana foundation. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Um, But here, people choose to follow Jesus Mm. on their own volition. It's not the cool thing to
0: do. It's not the culture. No.
1: Mm -mm. Um, And, yeah, I was very genuine. Everyone here, I feel, is genuine. Not that people in Tennessee aren't. It's just the thing. <laughs>
0: can you imagine, um, say you guys were to move or to make a life change, can you imagine not having community? Oh, I,
1: no. I wouldn't imagine living here still if we didn't have it. When Charlie and I first moved out here and our friends would always say, like, well, are you going to move back? Are you going to move back? We tell them, oh, we're just going to, like, live in Colorado and, like, adventure for a couple years <laughs> and then, like, move back to Tennessee and settle down and, like, have a family. But, like, here we are four years later. Like, I'm not scared mm-hmm. to start a family here because I ha- have family here. Um, like, That's I don't know. That's awesome. Yeah. That's
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you for sharing. Of course. I want to pray for you before we stop. Okay. God, it's not you. What is it? I don't know. Okay. Um. (laughs) You're good. Just hold it still. Okay. Oh, God. (laughs) Thank you for Angel and Charlie and the community that they have found themselves in. Thank you for their friends and how they have so authentically and deeply um, stayed connected. It is a treasure this side of heaven. It is a gem and we thank you for it. Um, I pray a blessing on Angel and on Charlie of peace um, and belonging and I know that your spirit is intimately involved in weaving these communities within our community together and we are abundantly grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.
2: Well, you just... <clears throat> Angel, thank you for your authenticity there. Um, yeah. You just... Uh, you just gave me flashbacks to those videos that I'd have to make on Thursdays. Trent would then edit them, and then you all had to watch them. <sighs> Ugh. <laughs> last week uh, I made the case that one of the things that has really frustrated me with frustrated me about the kind of contemporary Protestant evangelical church is that we lack a clear working theory on how to transform and that theory is not put into a set of practices that are easily kind of accessible to us. What we've been given in our lives, uh, typically if you go to most American churches, it's a conversion experience with some level of emotional manipulation involved (laughs) slash um, just attend church every Sunday or join a small group. And all those things are great, except for the emotional manipulation part. But there's everything, it's, we just, after that, we really don't know how we transform. We really don't. Um, And I shared kind of an overview of what we're calling our transformation posture. And that's what this is. And I talked about uh, community and truth and practice. Because here's the thing, guys, we, want to, we, we here want to be really clear on this. We, we want to have, in a sense, a, a structure or a, a way to see what it looks like to transform that is something we can, like, enter into. Here's the big statement for us today. I believe that discipleship to Jesus is the joyful relearning of what it means to be human. I don't see discipleship to Jesus as behavior modification or morals. or I think it's about what it looks like to be fully human how God intended us. And I think Jesus modeled that. And so, last week we talked about truth um, as an idea that of who Jesus is. Jesus is the truth, and opening ourselves up to who Jesus is is also opening ourselves up to some self-understanding. We talked about practices and how if we want to live the life of Jesus, we actually have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And then we talked about community a little bit, very briefly last week, that we want to be a community that is intentionally obligated to each other. And and we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit really works in all those areas to transform us. Today, we're going to double-click on community because it is so important. But I want to pray because what we're about to jump... Jump into is going to be um, probably really, really difficult and complex for us. So let me pray. God, we want to be the kind of community that you intend us to be. And I fully recognize that in this room, there is 100% agreement in the fact that all of us have been hurt in relationships that all of us at some level or another have been hurt even in church. That being human makes us feel wounds from other people. But you have something for us that, um, that you want to invite us into, into a deeper and more intentional way. And I just ask that you would help us to... Well, we got some <laughs> Help us to all get a loud scooter. Um, help us to see what you have for us this morning. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. We may want to close the kitchen windows, just throwing that, just an idea. Thanks, Curtis. Um, Genesis 1 The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Did you have this teaching is probably something that you've probably heard this verse is probably something you've heard around marriage. And it's been a heavily used verse around marriage in the in the church but i think it really has to do with the core be- beginning of humanity is with loneliness that god is making all these things he's creating everything in the in the in the creation narrative and he's saying it's good it's good it's good and this is the first time god said this isn't good says is, loneliness isn't good the need for relational connection is evident and we have to fix this i think loneliness is pretty much an epidemic right now Uh, sociologists say that the younger you are the more likely you are to deal with loneliness partly because of your digital connections with people are just digital um and even though we have tons of apps and ways to connect with each other we're actually more disconnected Um, It's not the same as face-to-face community. It's not the same as as, uh, being with somebody. Uh, Tech cannot substitute for the relational ache that we have. Um, MIT researcher Sherry Turkle, she wrote this in her book, which is phenomenal. I would encourage anybody to read this. She says, we are lonely but fearful of intimacy, digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship our networked life allows us to hide from each other even when we are tethered to each other we would rather text than talk right guys i mean oh come on i was just making fun of the front row second row But when technology engineers intimacy, relationships can be reduced to mere connections. And then, easy connection becomes redefined as intimacy. But otherwise, cyber intimacies slide into cyber solitudes. And with constant connection comes new anxieties of disconnection, a kind of panic. Has anybody felt that? And there's a sense in which, yeah, there's so much to be connected to, and yet we feel absolutely lonelier than ever. And, and, and let's be honest. In our modern world, we're able to curate our lives how we want. And as a result, we've kind of lost the art of community, and we feel lonely. Genesis 1.18, it says, when, when it says, The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone, it's this idea that you and I are hardwired for a relationship. We're hardwired for community. And since this is typically a marriage sermon, um, what usually happens is um, it, it, that's the only conversation that people hear. When it doesn't matter if you're married or not, you're lonely. In fact, I know married people who are lonely, better to be single and lonely than married and lonely, right? I mean, the idea is like we all sense loneliness. But we're given hints about who God is. And a little bit later, Genesis 126, it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. That word us is Elohim. And this is a plural word. There is in the hebrew scriptures there is a plurality to who god is and god is one yet three and this is where we first get that the taste of god living in a relational community as himself uh, woven into scripture throughout scripture we don't fully grasp this this is the the mystery and the beauty of the trinity Today, I thought about going into the book of Acts and talking about how the church kind of got off the ground, and, and there's this really beautiful passage in Acts 2 about everybody was together, and they, everything was great for like a hot second. It was great. And there's this, there this passage in Luke two forty one, and I'm not going to read it, but it's just this idea that there was this conversion experience, but um, that a lot of people it says 3,000 were added to their number daily, to that day, you know, and, and more people kept adding to their number. And evidently, somehow in the conversion experience, uh, there was an, an, an increase in this family. And so we could have we jumped into all that stuff. And actually, that's where I was on about Tuesday this week. But then I thought, well, there's this passage that's pretty, pretty intense. Um, and I decided to to look at this passage of Jesus, one of the most radical passages that Jesus ever taught. So, would you guys be interested in one of the most radical passages that Jesus ever taught? You should have said no. <laughs> Mandy's like no. Brooks like you're up for it. And Angel's just going to disagree with it. Apparently, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Mark three, thirty-one. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. So apparently Jesus is in a home, and Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. <laughs> Mom's here. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seating in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Wow. That's just one of those passages we kind of like, well, that, that. <laughs> Jesus is kind of intense. <laughs> um, notice, though, that for Jesus, his family were the people that were doing the will of God. And the number one thing that Jesus called God was father. And the number one thing that Jesus called other followers of God were brothers and sisters. Uh, All throughout scripture, uh, there's this dominant moniker, 342 times actually is the word Adelphoi, which is my brothers, my sisters. And family was the best description of what Jesus came up with to talk about community. Now, there's types of community that you and I are used to. Some of you have a gym community. Some of you have a work community, neighborhood community, whatever, school. For Jesus, the type of community that we are as a church is that of a family. That's the image that Jesus uses. Now, for some of you, that sounds really kind of wonderful and sappy. For some of you, that sounds terrifying, depending on what your experience is, right? But this is Jesus' most radical teaching, and we're going to get into why. We're going to do a little bit of nerdy, then we're going to do some other stuff, and then we're going to land the plane. Two things to get our head around, around Jewish culture in the first century. Anthropologists talk about the culture that Jesus uh, was living in as a strong culture, a strong society, and a weak group society. So a strong group society, weak group society. Uh, Sociologist Bruce Molina, he wrote this, this is what a strong group society is. In a strong group society, the person perceives him or herself as a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with the group's norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual member, okay? That is a strong group society. Now, some of you, that sounds totally oppressive, right? That's because you and I are in a weak group society. Strong group society are um, Korean culture, uh, African culture, Middle Eastern culture, Basically, every society outside of Western European culture is a strong group society. Currently, right now, we live in a weak group society, meaning the individual's autonomy is the most important. Our needs and our desires outweigh the group's needs and desires, right? You do you. And self-determination and satisfaction are paramount. What you want to do, when you want to do it, it's up to you. So in the West, we redefine freedom as do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. And this, does, this kind of goes against like the biblical definition of freedom and really even Greek philosophy. So, Jesus' world was a strong group society, and your primary social pressure in that strong group, group society was to your family. Like you did, you were free to do what you wanted to do within the norms of the family, and if it brought honor to the family. Does that make sense? Second thing is, it was something called patrilineal, meaning... Everything, if you were to vision your family tree, it all came through the father's side of things. Meaning, this is going to ruffle some feathers, all right? You were defined by your father's bloodline, not by marriage. So there were no surnames in the Bible. It was only son, son of so-and-so, okay? So your spouse technically... Was not a part of the family. Weird, right? Like family trees were, they didn't fork the same way. It was more about what was best for your group and not what best for your personal happiness. Your closest relationship was most likely with your sibling and not your spouse. Weird. So we're just trying to get our heads into the context of Jesus' day. In the West, we assume that your most intimate relationship will be with your spouse. But in a strong group society, the assumption is your strongest ties are actually going to be with your siblings. Now, what does Jesus call his apprentices? Brothers and sisters. The most intimate relationship paradigm in his world were brothers and sisters. Why is this so radical? Jesus defines his family not by patrilineal bloodline, but by whoever does God's will. And so Jesus' world was far more interested in kind of ethnocentric family tribal stuff. But his family, all that does his father's will are, they were, it was open to Jews, Gentiles. It was open to people who actually served Rome by taxing Jewish people as a Jewish person, like Matthew. His, his family was like, kind of a wild mix of people. Second thing is this, Jesus' call to put his family ahead of your patrilineal family was pretty pretty scandalous. His mother and brothers were outside, and he's telling everybody, hey, bloodlines aren't as important as you think. What's important is who is following me. Now Jesus was the old, oldest living male in his family line, and he was therefore responsible for a certain decorum in the family. But he communicates that his blood flam- family is less important than the larger family of God. He's basically saying, "Give up your blood family to join my multi-ethnic spiritual family." So this was radical call to strong in a, in a strong group society. This was like radical, and I think it Still pretty radical for us, just in a different way. Notice Jesus does not question the strong group kind of society approach uh, to community. He just changes it from the blood family to the people of God. He just changes it. And he asks us to make his group our primary group. And this is wildly at odds with being a Western individualist. This is really hard for us. Remember the definition of that strong group society that I just read? I rewrote it. I'm going to read it over you, and I want you to pay attention to how you feel about it. In the church, the person perceives him or herself as a member of a church and responsible to the church for his or her actions destiny, career development and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only in, a, in accord with the church norms and only of the act, if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual member. Now, how many of you are literally freaking out right now? Yeah. <laughs> Two-handed freak outs. <laughs> totally, me too. Sounds a little cultish. <laughs> now you could just swap out restoration. In at restoration, a person, you know, okay, <laughs> don't worry. This is not meant to be a guilt trip. What I'm what I'm doing is none of us think this way. We don't think this way. It's not in our bones. It's not in like, it's not deep within us like if we grew up in a strong group culture. We, we haven't grown in a, in a strong group culture, so this is really difficult for, them, for us. And yet, somehow this is still the call of Jesus. And I know some of you are sitting here going, you've got to be kidding me. This is literally freaking me out. Like, we have architected our church experiences, whether you go to a large church or, or a, a small church, as is um, just, like, kind of come as you are. You don't have to, like, just come consume it, um, kind of sneak out. And that totally, I mean, I've been there. <laughs> but for some reason, in Jesus', like, way of thinking, to be a child of the father is to be at the same time a brother and a sister to others. You can't decouple those things. There's something in this that we need to pay attention to. We cannot decouple the two, and I I know some of of you and I, myself, keep trying to do that. Paul had this go-to metaphor, this go-to metaphor on what it meant to be a part of the family of God, and he called it adoption. And in Roman adoption, the father did all of the choosing. The father chose who to adopt and bring into the family. And there was no conversation. And that adopted son or daughter actually got legal status and the same rights as a son or a daughter um, of birth. And it's a beautiful picture. Especially if you're adopted, which we all are. But it means that you don't choose your family. In the last number of years, I've been chewing on this word that is very central to a lot of Christian doctrine, and it's the word justification. And for the last 500 years or so, we've read the term justification through a highly individualistic and legal framework. It's very much into uh, all throughout the Reformation um, in the 16th century. And um, from then on, we've really read it as Western individualists in in kind of a guilt-innocence way. But more and more scholars are concluding that no first-century Jew would have read it that way because they were in a strong group society. The justification was less about you were guilty and now you are innocent and you're declared right before God, but more about family identity and how you were baptized from one family group into another family group. And being justified meant that you were declared to be in the family of God. One scholar translated the word justification to mean Familification kind of crazy right meaning we have been familified by grace through faith we have been refamilied and i love that and yet it has huge implications for me so what does this mean for me and you jesus's vision for the church is that of a family and somehow you and I are transformed because we participate in that family. It's not a building, it's not an event, it's a family. Families eat together, families do life together, they hold each other accountable, they share resources and responsibilities together, they make decisions together, they release each other into flourishing opportunities, and they remain faithful to each other. So it sounds kind of crazy, but think about this, like if you were to just pop in and out of that on our ter- or our own terms, and there's no judgment because we all do that, um... The reality is we just have to realize that we think the way we think because we've been formed by our culture. We have let this kind of Western individualistic way form us. We've talked about this in the past. Unintentional spiritual formation. We're all being formed. It's just whether we're doing it intentionally or unintentionally. right? And it forms us. We do not get our individualism from Jesus or the New Testament. We don't get it from them. And so the vision for church as a family does not align with what you and I are kind of swimming in. So it makes it even harder. Second thing I want you to know is this, and this is super, super important. Family is the place of our deepest hurt and our deepest healing our highest highs and our lowest lows both come from relationships, right? Like, you can all sit there and go, yep, this person hurt me, that person hurt me, they go to church, (laughs) they, whatever. Now, some of you are like, "Um, it's easier for you extroverts uh, because you draw energy from other people. And I would say, yeah, that's true. There's something about being extroverted that helps you in crowds, but there's still like nervousness and defensiveness in us extroverts. Um, but all of us are relational to our core. And it doesn't matter if you're, you like being around a lot of people or just one or two people. Loneliness is proof that you are designed relationally. It's proof and so, from the womb, our brains are wired to attach to people. It's just in us. Neuroscience calls this attachment system. And it comes online as a, as, a, as a newborn. We have a lot of newborns in the room even. Before you even come out of the womb, and this is where we get attachment theory now. This is ancient wisdom, but it's upheld by modern science. Specifically, there's this guy in the 70s named John Bowlby. And John Bowlby did this. He's a psychoanalyst and psychiatrist, and he was able to data test adult patterns of relationships and how they were highly influenced by the relational patterns that they had when their parents uh, influence them at a young age, and so he came up with four attachment styles. You want to talk about them real quick? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say yes. Uh, the first one is avoidant attachment style. Um, this forms kind of, uh, it, you know, at a young age when an infant uh, feels rejection. Um, and they're constantly seeking uh, attachment, but they don't get it. And, and these are parents that tend to be emotionally rigid, and maybe they get angry at their little child or whatever, and the result is, for this person, as they grow up, um, they tend to not trust other people and, um, and, and subconsciously feel like they can't trust other people and they avoid intimacy. Ambivalent or anxious uh, attachment style is when an infant receives inconsistent kind of care from their parents. So um, there's there's not really a rhyme or reason, but they just feel as a as a small child, they're anxious and they they spend some. Th- they don't feel like they can trust their themselves really around other people, and so they may be clinging to people or codependent. Um, then there's disorganized attachment, and this is where the parent Um, and unfortunately we see this in our world where the parent is uh, more of the um, the threat for a child and um, there might be some abuse or maltreatment and this person may grow up not trusting themselves or other people okay and then the fourth one would be secure attachment style And this is when generally a a caretaker is often nearby, accessible, attentive to their child's needs, um, emotionally available, and this person doesn't grow up perfect, but grows up with kind of a basically well-loved and can trust most people in themselves kind of mentality. Now, quick takeaway. There's so much I could say, we're not gonna do it. The only way to heal. Some of you have done work in this area The only way to heal an unhealthy attachment style is through healthy relationships. There's no app. There's no pill. (laughs) There's no way to heal relationally without relationships that are healthy. Now, some of you are like, I don't like this language of attachment theory. It sounds too secular and psychobabbley. Totally get it. But it's in the biblical language. It's actually kind of encoded into Scripture itself. Our family of origin sets our soul on a trajectory to who we are and who we, uh, we, we become or do not become. And this goes on not only back to our parents but our grandparents, and as the scriptures say, to the third and the fourth generation. Remember last week I talked about the rats and the cherries, and how the adult rats were fed cherries, and then there was a a painful stimulus, and then um, their, their little baby rats didn't eat the cherries because of... They didn't even hear the sound or or get the painful stimulus, but they, they did not go near the cherry. See, you and I pick ways of being in relationship that are basically encoded and hardwired into us. And God the Father is actually wanting to reparent us into the family of God. And in his compassionate love and in his wooing for us to see ourselves the right way and to see and have compassion on each other, he he wants us to put off old ways. And some of those old ways are literally baked into us and, and, and put on this new life, take the old self, put on the new self, and this new way of being into a kingdom of God family. And the way God does this work of healing is through relationships. It's through people. And the word salvation, I've, I've said this over and over again, it's not just a conversion experience. Salvation is, at its core, healing. The Latin word salve is an ointment you put on a wound. And relationships are actually the family of God. Is we're meant to heal each other. And the one way, and this is the third thing I'll say before we finish, the one way to get the most out of community is to stay, is to stick it out. And that's really hard a lot of the time. There's a a whole thing I was going to go into, small groups and little house churches and, and how groups grow through stages. And the first is kind of a honeymoon stage where they're like, oh, we're all alike. And then when you get to know each other more, like your stuff comes up and your your little foibles and the way you treat people and how you get when you're anxious. And then there's the third stage where you actually meet like a, a point in the relationship with people where it's difficult. And most people bail at that point. But researchers have noticed that the people that push through that actually experience a beautiful bit of transformation, not only in their lives, but in their life as a community. Joseph Hellerman wrote a book that you should read if you're interested, called When the Church Was a Family. And he starts his book with this, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. You guys have heard me say this before, you can't follow Jesus alone. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding. That's this old idea of truth, okay? And they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. Some of us are still under the illusion that what we want is out there somewhere. It's out there somewhere and it's on our own, (laughs) right? This is the illusion. This is the great Western myth. Denver is especially kind of intoxicating because uh, we are built on rugged individualism and uh, we're very Western, even in in the United States. And it's a very transient and migrant place to live and to work. And the idea behind committing to a place and to a community over time, it actually changes you. That's why we do membership here at the church. Um, We have a membership class coming up. It's just a way for you to kind of go, listen, this is my church. I don't know what my life's going to look like 10 years from now, but right now I'm going to be a part of this. I'm going to make this my community. Sherry Turkle, who I quoted earlier, she has this great definition for community and she is not a believer, but just add following Jesus to this. Community is constituted by physical proximity, shared concerns, real consequences, and common responsibilities. That's when you know you're in community. Proximity to each other, shared concerns, real consequences, and common responsibilities. I love that. I love that because I I don't think a lot of us really have good definitions of being in community together. We don't have to just like the same things, but we do have to have shared concerns. Like seeking transformation in each other is a shared concern. That's why it's a posture for us as a church. Physical proximity together, like being together, like real consequences to our relationships, like we let each other down. Sometimes we're not reliable, sometimes it looks like we're not listening well. You ever been in one of those? I did that with Angela this morning, like we were talking and then I looked at a text from Ben. It's my fault. (laughs) But it's easy to be connected digitally, right? And we were having a conversation and I quick answered a text. I wasn't listening well. This is how our behavior actually impacts each other. We have real, it has real consequences common responsibilities, like, what are we actually committed to? How are we committed to each other? How do we serve each other? How do we do that intentionally? So I'm throwing this all out there because we feel like it's part of who we're going to be. Now, here's what I would love to have. I would love to have a little, like a booth downstairs with things to sign up for and Small group leaders running around, smiling and saying, hey, you should be a part of our group. and We could have this all kind of like, we could hold your hand through the process. But you're adults. <laughs> and we've got to figure this out. Some of you need to make maybe a purposeful walk across the room and meet someone you've never met. That might be part of it. Some of you might go, you know what? I've had great conversations with this person. Why don't we, like, grab coffee or grab some dinner together? Why why can't I invite this family over and, like, really get to know their story? And and it was so fun hearing your story, Angel. And yours, Charlie, by proxy. But um, (laughs) that's not their whole story. That's just a little bit of their story moving to Denver and not knowing anybody and being lonely. There's so much more to their story, so much more to yours. And my encouragement for you is, like, like pursue it. Start a community. Like, some of you are like, I really want to have a small group community that meets weekly or every other week. Okay. Let's start one. Like, let's figure that out. Let's make it a priority. Let's make it intentional. Maybe for some of you, it's just like, I just, I call this my church, and I just come and do the thing, and I leave. Maybe you could serve somewhere. Maybe you'd help make coffee. If you came early and helped make coffee, you'd meet people you wouldn't normally meet. If you work downstairs in the kids area, you'd meet people, a lot of you know each other because you know each other's kids. Like, maybe you should learn each other's names now. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, your kid's cute. I know, little guy, yeah. We should hang out. Or maybe you don't want to hang out with them because their kid's nuts. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. That's what backyards are for, right? So this is just, can you throw the little graphic up again, Evelyn? It's right down in the corner, but there it is. There's a lot of overlap. And we just really feel like community how we change. It's really much part of how we change. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to leave a lot of things untied off and unfinished. And I have some updates for you, including it's really hot in here. It's hot. It's oh. hot. Yeah. Nope. I have the mic, all right? Let me pray. <laughs> what, a <family. laughs> what a yeah, what a family. God, we are grateful for the picture that you're calling us to. And if we're really honest, it's terrifying if we're really honest about it, it sounds kind of messy and hard. But there's something about this way you've created us that we cannot shake. Technology can't shake it. Moving from place to place can't shake it. We are wired for relationship. We are wired in your image and in your likeness that s- true human flourishing means that relationships got to be a part of it and if it's true that discipleship to jesus is the joy of relearning what it means to be human then god all of us in different ways have to relearn what it looks like to be in relationship And we can't just wait for it to happen. We actually have to make some courageous steps. And for some of us, that is terrifying. God, I'm asking for the power of your Holy Spirit to give us the courage to set up a a coffee, to invite someone out to lunch, To gather a group of people, not knowing what their stories are, what their personalities are, what their weird foibles are, whatever they are, to gather them in a living room. To begin to start asking people deeper questions and sharing more of our stories. God, for some of us in community, what would it look like for us to take it further? To trust each other more to be more open, authentic, and vulnerable. God, you have work to do, you have healing to do, and it's right here. And we ask for the courage to participate. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.